When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast, a podcast in which we analyze, discuss, and then disseminate where history, mythology, and pop culture influence our popular storytelling. And if you can't tell, I am very excited to be here with another Midnight Myth episode. And the reason I'm excited to be here, this doesn't happen often, but sometimes we are in such a groove we are in such a dialogue where we really can't fit everything we plan to discuss in one episode and that we get to do a surprise two-parter. Well, if you listen to last week, we discussed the historic and folklore origins of Robin Hood. And that conversation was so fruitful and so engaging, it pretty much dominated the entire episode and we didn't even get to scratch the surface of what we actually wanted to talk about, which was contemporary versions of Robin Hood in modern cinema, which we're going to talk about today. So this is episode 94B, Loxley. We're going to cut your heart out with a motherfucking spoon. Because it's dull and it will hurt more. But this podcast will hopefully not be dull and hopefully will not hurt. Think of this like... A, uh, a grand feast. So last week you heard us serve you a, uh, an aperitif and a salad and a first course, maybe a pasta. Did you just say served a parrot? A- aperitif. I don't know what that means. It is a drink that you w- would drink before a meal to sort of whet your appetite. Um, so we served you some of those early courses last week, and they were more substantial than we were ready for, and you just got way too full, and you did not save room for a meat course, a dessert, or a spiked cup of coffee. So this week, we've got some steak, we've got some tiramisu, uh, some cheesecake, and we have coffee with Baileys in it. That is what we're going to serve you this week. Sweet. Now, it goes without saying, you need to listen to episode 94A, Loxley, before this. 
They are in conjunction. Well, you know what? If you want to start here, fine. Do whatever you want, listeners. I just don't recommend it. You're just going to be missing a lot of context for the legend that forms the basis of the contemporary films that we're going to talk about this week. And um, so I'm really excited to roll up my sleeves and begin working on contemporary versions of Robin Hood in film. In particular, I'm going to be discussing the 1991 movie Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves for a variety of reasons. One, I really like that movie. Two, it was the point, as I explained in last week's episode, where I became enamored with the Robin Hood mythos. It helped as an entryway for getting me into medieval history writ large. And um, to me, still stands the test of time as the best modern, and I'd say modern from the last like 25 years, version of Robin Hood in film. And I can't wait to talk about it. But before we do that, a lot of people have been hitting us up on Twitter via the Facebooks. If people need to reach us and want to continue the dialogue after the episode, Laurel, how can they reach us? Well, first, I'm going to painfully remind us that this movie we're going to talk about came out almost 30 years ago. Um, but then I will say, if you want to get in the conversation, please hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we have a website, www.midnightmyth.com, where you can drop us a line with the contact form there. And you can also read additional blog material uh, and see what else we have going on in the near future. We do have a lot of fun new things that we're introducing in the coming weeks. So make sure you stay tuned and hit subscribe on your favorite uh, podcast listening app, especially Apple Podcasts. And then wherever you are, please leave us a rating or a review. Let us know what you think of the podcast so that more people can find us and we can continue to grow this community. So in 1991, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves comes out starring Kevin Costner. It is a beautiful movie, both from its cinematography, its costumes, It has a, I think, an engaging story that still lasts and holds the test of time. And it begins with our hero, Robin Hood, in a prison in Jerusalem, which is controlled, which they say, by the Turks. More on that later. And um, Robin is fighting in a crusade. This would be, in history, the third of the, the Christian crusades to take over the Holy Land, the area we now call the Middle East, And uh, he escapes from that prison with the help of Azim and his friend Peter, travels back to England after escaping the prison to find his father been murdered, the sheriff of Nottingham, pretty much ruling this area of England as a, a, you know, benign military autocratic dictator. And he wages a guerrilla warfare against the sheriff by training peasants and common folk in how to fight. And they are trying to disrupt the flow of money to the sheriff of Nottingham, And it all culminates with a great big um, public hanging in which Robin Hood and the remaining merry men fight, free their friends. Robin Hood kills the sheriff. The king comes back. Robin marries Maid Marion. And Friar Tuck sits there and says, don't 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 take too much time with the kiss because we got to all go get fucked up. And don't forget uh, the amazing and wonderful Sean Connery shows up as the uh, Richard the Lionheart. Uh, And he also historically played Robin Hood in uh, a filmic version as well. So it's a nice little cameo. Absolutely. So I'd like to begin my discussion of the movie in and around its historical setting and its historical time. Would you permit me to take the intro there? Please. Why, thank you. So the first thing we see in this movie is a text blurb 
in which they say that Jerusalem has fallen and is in the hands of the Turks. This is a period of time in which um, European powers had band together to form holy crusades to reclaim, in particular, Jerusalem and other areas of the Middle East, what we now call the Middle East, that were holy to Christians and build what we now call the Crusader States. These are large swaths of territory that were in the hands of Islamic caliphates that Christians came, conquered, and formed nations. And the idea was to form a funnel by which people can pilgrimage, by people I mean Western Europeans, could pilgrimage there. Well, this was all well and good. However, the Crusader states were literally surrounded by their enemies and the the people who had control over these territories. In particular, one Muslim general leader and statesman named Salahadin, and uh, I may not be pronouncing that correctly, rose to prominence and was able to unite the Islamic world, and he had one main military goal, reclaim the Crusader states and reintroduce a new Islamic caliphate over them, to which he was successful. So he was able to conquer Jerusalem and all of the other, most of the other states. There were still a few that were in the hands of Christians, and He actually was somewhat kind in that he didn't kill all the Christians that he conquered, and he still allowed Christians to come to places like Jerusalem and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Sepulchre? Sepulchre, yeah, which is the apparently the spot where Jesus was actually um, uh, crucified in Jerusalem. And, you know, so there's this great big religious conflict called the Crusades, and that was just like— crusades on like super steroids, super fast and super, super superficial. That's not a term, but anyway, I digress. The one thing that we need to flesh out when we're trying to understand the crusades in a historical context in which I think we need to place this Robin Hood movie in. Okay. When you have a theological system that has 10 clear cut moral rules, which you cannot break without offending God and, and risking damnation, when one of those is thou shalt not kill, how do you have and allow and permit war? War is by definition killing. Therefore, if you are a Christian, you cannot go to war because God commands thou shalt not kill. We all know war's purpose is for two sides in a disagreement to kill each other until one relents and gives up or is completely wiped off the face of the planet and killed. Crusading is the way around this thou shalt not kill commandment. It is bigger than when we think of the military adventures of Europeans in what they called the Holy Land, we call the Middle East. Meaning that if you are a medieval Christian ruler and you want to kill someone for whatever reason, you had to get a crusade in order to do it without risking damning your own soul. So a crusade is a war under the papal banner, under the blessing of the Pope. The Pope says, you are, you, your thou shalt not kill commandment in this, in this crusade will not apply. Or this military exercise, pardon me, will now be a crusade because you are no longer going to be held to the standard of thou shalt not kill. So, That's not an easy thing to do rhetorically, nor is it an easy thing to do 
theologically or philosophically. Right. It's not like getting a doctor's note for going into work. It's bypassing, you know, the foundational bedrock of Christianity. So there is an idea in medieval philosophy and theology of the Corpus Christi, um, which means the body of Christ. And this idea is that the lands, the Christian lands, are an actual physical form of Christ on earth. And that when the Christian lands themselves are under threat and are under attack, you are in fact attacking Christ himself. And this mm, is not okay. sim- this is not symbolic. This is literal. literal. Right? So if I'm medieval France and I'm being attacked by Islamic um, states, they are not just attacking the French, they're attacking Christ. Yeah, it's it's another form of transubstantiation. I don't think we should compare those two concepts theologically. Okay, I'm just trying to make sense of it, but go on. Yeah, so you mentioned transubstantiation is the is the 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 process by which the um, flesh the communion wafers the communion wafers the... turn into that. You know, that is more. Um, I'm trying to think of the right way. That's more ritualistic. Yeah. Right. So you go into a ritual in which you start with a piece of bread. At the end of that ritual, it comes out the flesh of of Christ. Okay. The Corpus Christi is not a ritual thing. It doesn't matter how many people pray for it or how many people don't pray for it. It's an actual fact of the the world that there is the Corpus Christi. Great. Undisputable. Thank you for explaining that because I wanted to conflate those two things, but that makes sense. Yeah. So I know it sounds like we're a little in the weeds, but bear with me, folks. It'll all come into play. Absolutely. So the Muslim caliphates of the medieval era were the more economically, militarily, educationally um, successful. They had the largest cities. They had the best artists. And they started chipping away into a empire we now call Byzantium. In that, this time, they would have called themselves the Roman Empire, subject for a different podcast. As Islamic caliphates started chipping into Byzantium, which was Christian, started chipping into their territory and started taking lands from that empire, the Byzantine Empire emperor called for assistance, called for military aid from his Western Roman Catholic allies. And thus, the Corpus Christi was under attack. Christ himself was under attack. And the response was to wage crusades, at first to defend Byzantium, but what quickly what it quickly turned into was conquest of the Holy Land and to bring that under the Christian fold. Right. Which it was under the Christian fold for a long time until Salah Hadin is able to unite Islam under one house and is able to retake most of the territory held by the Christians. Well, this really just can't stand if you're someone like Richard the Lionheart, um, who gets his name from this crusade. So three different European monarchs, uh, the King of Germany, who is also the Holy Roman Emperor, the King of France, and the King of England get together and they form what we call the King's Crusade or the Third Crusade to retake Jerusalem. And they fail. They are unable to do it for a whole host of long reasons, some militarian, military reasons, some logistical reasons, but they ultimately fail. This is the starting point that we have for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Are you with me? I am with you. It's important to note that Saladin was Kurdish. 
You may know the name Kurds because they're current allies to America in our war against terrorism in places like Iraq and Syria. He is not Turkish. And in the opening uh, sort of preface to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, we get a very basic outline of the context of the story, which says a crusade is being led against the Turks. And that the Turks control Jerusalem. Right. And the Turks end up becoming a very prominent and powerful empire. You may have heard of the Ottoman Empire. That is the Turkish Empire. But that is not the ethnicity of medieval you know, Islamic followers that was in control of Jerusalem at this time. So we're starting off pretty much not just on the wrong foot, but like on our hands. We're upside down with this preface. We are starting from a historical perspective with a egregious fallacy. Absolutely. Completely incorrect and incorrect on a like comically bad level. And uh, forgive me if this takes us off the rails at all, but it, can we understand any reason that they would have said Turks? Was it just to uh, sort of make things easier for uh, a 1990s Hollywood audience to accept? Or w- could we read any like malice or misjudgment of history into that? Do we know why they did that? I am so glad you brought that up because the historical context was point one of my point. Right. Point one of my point. I'm doing these a lot lately. These are really <laughs> dumb phrases. I apologize. It's not intentional for That's me to sound so dumb. That's how we get boomerangs. That's so. how we get boomerangs. Derek being dumb. So my first point to make is that there's a historical context in which there is Salah Hadin, in which there are the Kurds who have united most of the medieval Islamic world and control and wrestled with Jerusalem and many more of the other Islamic um, or, or crusader states have now crumbled, which they will never conquer again once they lose it. Right. The fact that they get it wrong to me betrays something called a, the intellectual fallacy of Orientalism. Now that's a huge word and it has a huge context So I know we're just in the opening text of the movie, yeah. but I think this will go into the broader way that I evaluate this movie. And I evaluate this movie as a piece of Orientalism. Allow me to explain. Listeners, have you ever wondered why it's considered inoffensive and inaccurate to call someone from either the Middle or Far East and quote unquote Oriental? It used to be common vernacular in the West. In fact, if you wanted to study the Middle or Far East in Western universities for a long time, you got a degree in Orientalism. We don't use that term because of a single thinker, a man by the name of Edward Said. Said wrote a text called Orientalism, and I highly recommend anyone interested in learning more about history and in particular how history is written or historiography and how historiography and academia can shape raw reality and shape knowledge and whether that can be good or bad or problematic to read this book. But it was so influential that the term the Orient became completely stricken from the academic record and you will not find an academic since then, describing the areas of the Middle East or the Far East as the Orient. And that's all due to Edward Said. Said's influence. Wow. Okay. So Said argued that, and this is going to be very simplistic, Said, in a sense, argued that Orientalism was written 
from a Western gaze by Westerners to make the Orient this far, exotic, and bizarre place, one worthy of mystery and wonder to study and observe, but to not actually understand. Okay. So it is, in effect, I'll I'll actually read you this quote from it. One ought, again, to remember that all cultures impose corrections upon raw reality, changing it from free-floating objects into units of knowledge. The problem is not that the conversion takes place. It's perfectly natural for the human mind to resist the onslaught on it of untreated strangeness. Therefore, cultures have always been inclined to impose complete transformation on other cultures, receiving these other cultures not as they are, but as, for the benefit of the receiver, they ought to be. So forgive me if I'm wrong in any of this and correct me if I am, but what I perceive from that quote is, as humans, we like to organize, we like to categorize, and we like to put things into boxes that we can understand, and yet everything that we do in the pursuit of that organization is filtered through our own sort of cultural experience, our own things that we perceive as normal. So by organizing things, we aren't necessarily making them better or making them more truthful. We're just making them more convenient for ourselves, even if that could be harmful. Yes. I would put it even more simply. Who benefits from the stereotype? Right. Those that have been stereotyped or the stereotyper? It is the stereotyper stereotyper, who benefits from the stereotype implicitly, in particular when it comes to academic disciplines whose goal is to understand the human condition and understand humanity and try to educate others so that they can go out into the world and do this and so that we can get closer to understanding the big mysteries. But if it starts from the premise of we're trying to convert the strangeness into something familiar so that we can understand it, rather than confronting the strangeness head on, we then delve into the murky waters of Orientalism. Absolutely. This is why it doesn't matter if it's Kurds or Turks. They've well, all been okay. treated as strange. As other. As other with the same. You can supplant in Kurds or you can supplant in Turks or you can supplant in Arabs. It doesn't matter what nationality. It's all the other and it's very simple. At the onset, we are in a medieval, apparently Turkish, but should be Kurdish prison. And we see a group of guards who speak perfect English, brutally torturing the English people. We see Robin Hood with an act of courage and bravery, put his hand down to be chopped off and says, this is English courage. This is English courage. When he says that line, by definition, implies the cowardness of the torturer. But let us remind the historical context by which this movie is set. This movie is set with a foreign invader trying to conquer lands, and he is a prisoner of war. So I would like to draw attention to something that King Richard the Lionheart did. So there was an assault on, on a medieval... Uh, Islamic town or city that he won. He conquered it. It's called Acre. He conquered it and had 2,000 Islamic prisoners, men, women, and children. In the ancient world, I'm sorry, in the medieval world, pardon me, if you have conquered people, you have, you give the people what's called the right of ransom. 
If they have someone that will pay for their freedom, they're allowed to pay for it, and then you can give them back. Anyone left over, you can do whatever you want with in, in terms of the rules of engagement. You can sell them into slavery. You can kill them. You, whatever you want, you could, whatever, they're yours. But the people that can can be paid for, you're allowed to pay for, let, allow the enemy to pay for them. It's called ransom. Great. He has 2,000 men, women, and children, and he cuts off all their heads. Just decides, you know what? Just no ransom. You know what? No ransom? No anything? No, no chance for even it being sold into servitude or being shipped back to England to be serfs? Nothing. I'm just going to chop off all of their heads. He does this for two reasons. One, it's a lot of prisoners. So it's a lot of headache figuring out who is who and where they're going to go and who should be ransomed and not. And he's in the middle of the war. And two, you know, he was feeling pretty confident in his strategic position. Maybe that would tempt Salah Hadin to leave and try to pursue him and fight him on King Richard's terms. So it proved a logistical and military stratagem and an act of horrible barbarity. And the reason I bring that up is not to demonize Richard the Lionheart. It's to put into context that they're in this prison being tortured, but we see nothing of the English and what they were doing in the Crusades. Right. It's purely from the Orientalist guys. We are seeing the other who is strange, who is savage, who is torturing the English. And that first scene is rough, right from the historical incorrectness of the Turks to this barbaric prison that's meant to highlight the strangeness and bizarreness and the innate joy that the guards have in torturing the, the good, noble, Western male heroes. But this movie then does something else. It gives us Azim. So before I dive into Azim, just a quick sum up of where we're at, because I feel like that was a very dense opening segment. It absolutely was, and so, wonderful. So the Crusades was a way in which Western European medieval Christians were able to get the papal blessing to wage warfare without risking damning their soul. In particular, we know this through the attacks that the Western Europeans had to conquer the areas of Jerusalem in uh, our, what we now call the Middle East. They were successful in the First Crusade, forming the Crusader states, which led to the emergence of Salah Hadin, who then came and reconquered these states from the Christians, which launched the King's Crusade with Richard the Lionheart, who was a ruthless and, f and also fascinating military leader that ultimately failed in his goal to retake Jerusalem and that gets us to the opening of Robin Hood. Right. Prince in, of Thieves. In which we see Orientalism everywhere in the first scene. We see stereotypes of the Middle East written by Westerners for Westerners to benefit Westerners at the detriment of the history and rich culture of the Middle East. Wonderful. Thank you for that recap. I felt that was necessary. I Yeah, I agree because we just covered a lot of material, but it's nice to go back and kind of get that um, sort of boiled down version of the, the key points to move forward. So can I say that Azim from a, you know, contemporary historiographic and through the lens of understanding Orientalism as problematic is a very interesting character to, to examine. So in, in many ways, he's the standard fish-out-of-water archetype. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's a Moor in a country that hates Moors, but he earns everyone's, everyone's respect through his deeds and actions. 
But one thing that the movie does that I would say is not Orientalist, that is not problematic, I'd like to draw our attention to the scene after Robin meets Maid Marian and her keep. Okay. This is a great scene because, A, it has Maid Marian like a ninja battling Robin, which is very cool. She's amazing. It has this very touching moment between Maid Marian and Robin Hood where he is explaining her brother and his death and how he's sworn to protect her. We see her emerge as this great uh, sort of modern medieval feminist icon where she's just like, no more boyish gestures. And she's trying to get him to leave because she realizes if he tries to protect her against the sheriff's men, he'll probably get killed. But there's also this moment in which Azim takes a glass ball, wraps it with leather, and he forms a makeshift telescope. Yeah. He hands it to Robin, and Robin takes a look at it, and he instantly thinks the sheriff's men are there and draws his sword. Yeah. And Azim (laughs) looks at him and goes, how did your uneducated kind ever take Jerusalem? And the line that Robin Hood says in response is, God only knows. God knows. And I like to pause for a moment. It's and, so tongue in cheek. And think about, but there's so much happening in that. One, yeah. we see that the English are fundamentally less educated than the uh, Islamic caliphates, which is a historical fact at that time. Yeah, We see that Azim is, has access to and understands how more complex technology like a telescope. We don't think of a telescope as complex technology, but to a medieval English person, it actually is complex technology. We see that Robin, he holds the telescope in his hand, in his one hand, holds out his sword in the other, because he can't understand how something that looks so close is actually far away. He's trying to figure out how far away this is, which shows how fucking backwards and dumb he he is. Yeah. And then there's the moment in which that the dialogue, how did your uneducated kind ever take Jerusalem? God only knows. The reason that's significant to me is because God is what wills victory or failure in combat in the eyes of a crusading knight, which Robin is a He is a crusading knight through and through. He is the son of a nobleman who followed the king on a crusade. And whether you win or whether you lose is determined by God. The fact that Robin says God only knows, question mark, is he is alluding to the fact that God does not determine the fate of the combat. He doesn't know how his people who don't know how a telescope works, works, could potentially have ever conquered right, Jerusalem to right. begin with. He's otherwise admitting that it is not God who determines the outcome of battles, but human endeavors. In this, we see a flipping of the negative stereotypes of Orientalism that we see in the beginning to a more positive stereotype of Orientalism. Still, albeit stereotypical, yeah. written by Westerners for Westerners, to examine Western concepts, but less detrimental and less insulting. And there we also see the admittance of human events not being up to divine intervention, whether God wants to help you win a battle or lose a battle. It has to be about something else. And in that scene, so much is happening there that I think it's one of the the lenses by which we can understand that this movie has so much going on. In a way that feels absolutely in step with the uh, legacy of the Robin Hood legend, right? Because this has always been a story about uh, someone coming up or uh, 
you know, leaving the uh, sort of classist overtones of regular society and entering a lawless and yet somehow utopian world where every human being has the same amount of value, whether they are a strong and brawny man or a woman who can bear seven children or a woman who defends her own land against intruders or someone from another country, from another land who has uh, incredible insight into mathematics and science that we never would have uh, imagined on this side of the earth. So there is a sort of wrapping up of this very egalitarian ethos that the Robin Hood legend has always carried and moves it forward into the 20th and 21st centuries. Now, I think it's worth noting with Azim as a character that this is not the first time that a Muslim has been a part of the band of merry men, but it almost is. This uh, this inclusion within the legend is a convention that's introduced in 1984 with the TV special Robin of Sherwood. And this series introduces a character named Nazir, uh, who sort of fills in the same sort of space that Azim does in this film. And what's fascinating about how important he is to Prince of Thieves is that the people writing and directing this movie saw Robin of Sherwood and were like, let's include Nazir in this version. But they had a crew member who had worked on Robin of Sherwood who was like, um, actually they invented Nazir and we're probably breaking copyright right here. So we should maybe give him a different name. So this is a very new convention of the Robin Hood legend, but it sort of shows, it sort of goes to show how this story snowballed to include people who look different in that egalitarian vision of society. Yeah, absolutely. Other great moments with the character Azim is when little John's wife is giving birth mm-hmm. and he goes in and performs a C section. This is another example of flipping the Orientalist message where the Near East is savage. The West is civilization. The Near East is barbaric. The West is holy. The Near East has potions and devil worship and all of these weird, mystical, magical things where there is piety and simplicity. And it flips it on the head, and it even has a moment in which the Christian clergyman, the friar, Friar Tuck, who is a fantastic character, actually goes to Azim and shakes his hand and says, you know what, man, I fucked up. You really are awesome. You're the man. And I really fucked up thinking that you were just like some demon spawn that was here to spread your Satan worship. And in that moment, it gives me faith about how we can bridge these big cultural divides that we see in the world. And once again, we're right in step with the legend because what is the corruptive force? It's wealth. It's institutions that inherently corrupt, uh, you know, people of good faith. So having a character like Friar Tuck, who is this sort of street priest who preaches to people outside of the corrupt institution of the Catholic Church, we have someone who can be uh, steadfastly devoted to Christianity, can be steadfastly devoted to the principles uh, in the Bible, and yet can be malleable and can uh, sort of change and uh, expand his perspective to include respect for 
uh, humans that he otherwise would not be able to. We can't imagine that if we had taken someone from high up in uh, you know, the bishopry or someone who is higher up in the church and put them in that position, they would have accepted Azim as quickly as Friar Tuck would. But we are once again affirming the um, sort of positive influence of man getting closer to nature, man cultivating his own land, and spending time with people that he views as equal. Yep. And, you know, the other big lesson, and the thing that you can ultimately take away when you're dialoguing with Saeed is to be like, be wary of these stereotypes, be wary of the prejudices, be wary of institutionalized bias. These things benefit the powerful, but they don't benefit the, the people. And what is a crusade if not an institutionalized bias? It's saying there's a universal moral law called not killing that we can suspend because fundamentally the thing we're going to kill doesn't really qualify as a soul worth saving. Right, yeah. God's happier that we kill this thing than we try to save it, so go ahead and kill it. It is the definition of institutionalized bias. It's the definition of weaponized stereotyping. It's so perverse. It's it's just completely perverse, and that's what this Azim character, uh, very on-the-nose attempts to uh, reverse within this utopian society of the band of merry men. And it reminds us in our own contemporary lens and our contemporary point of view, the danger of prejudice and the value of diversity by opening ourselves up and saying, just because you're different doesn't mean you're wrong. Well, probably my favorite line in the whole movie is when uh, the child approaches Azim and says, did God paint your face? And is asking, like, why are you different? Why do you look different from me? And Azim says, Allah loves wondrous variety. And it's such a simple and yet poetic and beautiful way of saying, like, diversity is beautiful and it makes life interesting and exciting, and it makes sure that we're able to spread the knowledge that we have, spread the love that we have, spread the morals that we have across the world without quashing things that are different from us. So while we're, you know, seeing obviously this extremely modern and progressive interpretation of this tale, it all absolutely feels like it's coming from the same ethos that built the Robin Hood legend, or at least made it something that continues to reverberate in our bones today. This idea that we can all be incredibly wondrous, valuable, and special, not in spite of our differences, but because of them. Now, we've had a very fruitful and interesting discussion about how this film slots into contemporary ideas of Orientalism. And we've had some conversations about this character of Azim. Would you be uh, okay if I sort of pivot us into a different direction and another interpretation of what's going on in this movie that I think will come back around? Yeah, I'm totally into it. I feel like I've also word saladed all over this episode. So please. Word soup. Word soup. Because it was warm and it made me feel good. Um, Aww, I love you. <laughs> I love you too. Um, so in the last episode that we did, I admitted that this week was my first time seeing this movie, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Um, and part of that is because I was born in 1990 and it was very much a 1991 movie and not something that, um, 
you know, I was seeking out as a young person. And I went into this thinking, oh shit, like, do I really want to watch this Kevin Costner not being able to do an English accent uh, Robin Hood movie that's going to be so inaccurate to the legend, that's going to be so far from like what I would respect as a good film and was like deeply surprised and, you know, just endlessly delighted by this movie. And I feel like we have been like laying it out as a given that this is a great movie and there may be people who agree with us and there may be people who wildly disagree with us, but I did want to point out some of the, um, like really important and really, uh, just solid elements of the screenplay that are at play within this movie. Do it. And they tie in a little bit to this conversation about Azim, but more in a structural way. And I don't think that we have ever talked about this convention on the podcast, and that drives me crazy, but this screenplay uh, for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, I feel like demonstrates it better than most things that I have seen from Hollywood in a long time, and that is the principle of Chekhov's gun. Uh, If you're not familiar with this, this is a principle laid out by the fabulous and important playwright Chekhov uh, that... Wait, wait, wait. Wasn't he the helmsman in Star Trek? Sorry, yes. bad joke. Yes and no. <laughs> I'm so sorry. This is the guy who wrote The Seagull, the Russian uh, playwright. Um, so this is a dramatic principle that states that every element in your story must be significant and essential, honestly. So the uh, sort of metaphor here comes from a letter that Chekhov wrote to a colleague where he says, quote, one must never place a loaded rifle on the stage if it isn't going to go off. It's wrong to make promises you can't keep, end quote. What he's saying here is that no red herrings, no MacGuffins. Every element, every detail that you place in your story, especially if you place those seeds early, have to pay off in a way that is expected And that doesn't mean that your story has to be predictable. It just means that you, as a writer, as a storyteller, make promises, and it's up to you to fulfill them. And I think Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, does so in ways that are literal and that are uh, symbolic. So the sort of symbolic ways that it fulfills this Chekhov's gun promise have to do with Azim, who is a character who at the very beginning in this sort of prelude scene before they get back to England, uh, has his life saved by Robin and pledges a blood oath to him, says, you know, you've saved my life and it is the custom of my people that I will not leave your side until I have saved your life. Now, this will continue to resurface in almost every scene where there is combat or there is threat or there is tension, this character of Azim is driven by this oath to give his life or to uh, you know, put himself into a position to save Robin in order to repay that oath until at the very end of the movie he does it and says, see, I have fulfilled my oath. So that's a very symbolic Uh, you know, firing of Chekhov's gun that he showed us in the very beginning of the movie. Also the witch. The witch. Yeah. yeah. So 
that's another place where it comes full circle. She, you know, divines this, uh, you know, this this thing where she knows that the painted man will kill her. And so that, um, you know, final confrontation between the two of them is fulfilling two quote-unquote prophecies from the early acts of the movie. But this film also does it with weapons, right? So in the same way that Chekhov says, don't put a loaded gun on stage unless you're going to fire it, he introduces significant weapons in the first act of the movie. These significant weapons being the scimitar that Azim is holding from the very beginning. Flesh that out because so everyone picks it up. I know, so, I know where you're going there. In that first scene that you were describing where we see this prison where the prisoners of war are held and we have that moment of this is English courage with my John Wayne accent, uh, Robin is about to have... Okay, come on. He doesn't sound like John Wayne. <laughs> his hand removed uh, by cutting it off with this curved scimitar, this sword, and... Azim gets a hold of that sword and carries it with him for the rest of the movie. Um, now, I spent a lot of the movie wondering about the physics of the scabbard that he has, because if you've got a curved sword that is narrow at the top and wide at the bottom, and the scabbard is like perfectly molded leather to fit that, then how do you get it out of the top? But that's not a, a real critique that I have leveled at the movie. We follow this character who holds this sword as the uh, literal uh, manifestation of his oath to save Robin's life. Finally, in the end, in a way that feels completely surprising and unexpected and yet inevitable, uses that sword to slay the witch as she is about to uh, you know, level a blow at Robin. So we've watched that sword, which wanted to cut off a hand at the beginning, uh, wanted to deal this mutilation upon Robin, actually be the sword that saves him, this literal uh, version of Chekhov's gun firing. Uh, and we get a similar one in the dagger uh, that the Sheriff of Nottingham gives to Maid Marion. Uh, if you track the sort of journey that this dagger goes upon, uh, the first thing that you'll notice about it is that it is jewel encrusted, that it is beautiful to look upon. And it's not, uh, it's not a weapon that is like first introduced as a weapon of violence. It's a weapon that is first introduced as a, uh, a symbol of riches and beauty. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I have a, a slightly different interpretation. Go, please. Um, so when we, and, and you're on a roll, so I'm sorry to, to cut you off No, there. no, I want to hear. So when we first see this dagger, it is in the church. Robin Hood has infiltrated it, but nobody knows. Mm -hmm. And Maid Marian and the Sheriff of Nottingham are having a Game of Thronesian style conversation. Yeah. Where what they're actually saying to each other is not the conversation they're having. Right. What they're actually having Subtext. is a conversation about who's going to rule England. Is it the king or is it going to be the sheriff? Right. And the sheriff is saying, you better come to me for protection. Otherwise, things are going to go bad. We see the sheriff of Nottingham betraying an inner gangsterism. Yeah. He's saying, yeah, you either come to me for protection or I'm going to kill you. 
Plus, I know that you have royal bloodline. And her resistance is saying, you know, no, don't worry. The king's coming back. Everything will go back to the status quo. And he's going to be happy for you. When he pulls that dagger, beautiful as it is, yeah. to me, that is a part of that it is absolutely subtext. a veiled threat. Of yeah. like, let me give you this that I pulled so violently from its sheath just to remind you who holds the power. I'm giving you this dagger. That's a very good point. You can never hurt me with this dagger, but it's to protect you. But otherwise, remember, who's got the knife to whose throat? That's such a good point. And yes, it is jewel encrusted and beautiful and it's, it's ornate. It's not designed to go into, to combat, to, you know, conquer the Holy land, but it is into me a representation of the, he's showing his power being like, I can give you this. You could never stab me with it. Yeah. I've got plenty more, by the way, because I'm Alan motherfucking Rickman. But he's overplaying his hand, right? Because he doesn't realize that giving her this gift uh, as this veiled threat is also, you know, it's also in a simplistic way, a metaphor for Marion, who is this beautiful and noble woman, but who carries this like, deep, uh, you know, tendency toward violence and self-defense within her who can absolutely hold her own and take care of herself. So by giving this to her, he has, uh, you know, affirmed the kind of power that he, that she has without really knowing it, but then tracking the journey of this dagger. Can I make one other point about that? Scene? Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. 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 What does the sheriff want to do with Maid Marion? He wants to marry her and sire a, uh, you know, an heir to the throne, a child with Royal blood. He yeah. wants to marry her and then we see him try to rape her. Yeah. That's foreshadowed through the dagger. Absolutely. Which is a phallic symbol of him sheathing yeah. the dagger and being like, let me give you my penis. Oh yeah. And there's there's a lot of there's a lot of phallic imagery in this film. And everything that we're talking about right now with the symbolism of these swords and daggers and hands getting cut off and the like, this all has to do with some dick measuring contests that are kind of deep within our subconscious as we write our legends and our stories. Right. Um, but let's track the, the evolution of where this dagger goes from the sheath of Sheriff of Nottingham, who uses it as this veiled threat and gives it to Marion, who then donates it to, uh, Robin Hood in realizing that he's not actually stealing things for himself, that he is trying to do right by the common people of the land is like, this will fetch a good price. It will help to sustain this kind of beautiful uh, utopian society that you have created. Then of course becomes the dagger that slides into the heart of the sheriff of Nottingham. So, but for that to happen, Robin has to, because Marion gives it, Robin holds that dagger. Yeah. Right. He doesn't put it with the rest of the treasure. Yeah. Because it's from Mary and he's just like, yeah, I'm going to hold on to this. So it's one of those moments of, uh, of Chekhov's insistence that every detail of your story should be significant and should pay off. And there are plenty of other objects that are set up early and pay off later, like beer, like barrels, like, uh, you know, a bundle of sticks. These things continue to come back as they are tied to characters, as they are tied to the story as a whole and the ethos that it's trying to convey. And in the end, one of the most important payoffs 
has to do with Azim. And I'm not talking about the scimitar. I'm not talking about fulfilling the witch's prophecy. I'm talking about the literal firing of gunpowder. So we started this conversation with this uh, idea of Orientalism and what it means to be writing from that perspective and whether this movie is approaching things from a an inherently deeply problematic or, you know, a, a well-intentioned, uh, you know, idea of, of portraying a progressive Robin Hood, at the end of this movie, in the final swashbuckling uh, combat that happens at this execution, this big battle uh, between the rights and the wrongs, big surprise of these barrels exploding the magical black powder that Azim has introduced to the band of merry men was set up in the very beginning with that first uh, makeshift telescope. Chekhov showed us the gun. You know, this movie showed us that this character is far beyond anything that we could have imagined. And we probably should have imagined that he had gunpowder up his sleeve, but we still didn't. And then when it happened, it seemed inevitable. It seemed like that was the only place that this could have gone. I love that. So I, I just love spending some time thinking about these dramatic conventions and how well built this screenplay is and how the building of this screenplay has everything to do with where at 1991 we were in our relationship to uh, in our Eastern counterparts and how we're still on that journey. And we should call out when we get closer to, you know, a, a just uh, reorganization of raw reality. When we get closer to, uh, you know, explaining the world around us without filtering it through our own biases, we should probably celebrate that and continue to push for better. You know, Midnight Myth fans, I want your help because Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, if we haven't by now convinced you that this is a movie with a ton going on, if we haven't done that by now, then why the fuck are you listening? <laughs> help us out because it's sitting at 51 on Rotten Tomatoes. That to me is a crying shame. This is a movie that had a huge and positive impact on me growing up. This is a movie that it certainly it has its flaws, but it's not a 50 fucking one. And it doesn't have a lot of flaws. No, it doesn't. I mean, we can talk. I mean, it's just the scabbard. That's the only flaw that I saw. <laughs> well, I mean, we can certainly discuss the the accents and how all over the place they are. However, charmingly, the lack of consistency in accents works. My, my, you know, I think there's another fundamental question with the accents. It's like, how realistic do accents need to be? Especially if you're doing a movie by Americans for Americans. Sure. You know, and like to me, not and, at all. And with everything that we talked about last week in terms of how deeply Robin Hood has become associated with Americana as well as Englishness, I'm ready to overlook it. And I didn't think I would say that this time last week. Yeah. And I would say, let's go out there. Let's sign into our Rotten Tomatoes. Because if you're <laughs> listening to The Midnight Myth, I know you have a Rotten Tomatoes account. You know, you do. So let's go out there and let's try to make this score suck a little less. Let's get it to like a nice 74. 
Like that would be fine. The definitive version of our generation of Robin Hood is sitting at 51 at Rotten Tomatoes. What are you going to do, Midnight Myth listeners? Are you going to allow this injustice to happen? Are you going to allow it to stay at just slightly above 50% approval? Fuck that. Maybe we could steal some fresh tomatoes from a, you know, higher rated movie and give them to this one Ooh. in a true Robin Hoodly act. Let's take them all from A Star is Born. Anyway. Anyway. Until next time, guys. Be, be kind. kind. Also, at the same time, I'd like to draw. I talked a lot and I lost my train of thought. I've been talking a lot and I lost my train of thought. I can I can jump in at the last thing that you just said and and fill it in yeah, a little that, bit. That sounds great. I, you know what? I I added a conjunction that I had another point when I don't think I had another point. Well, Whoa, let's go back to where you were.